Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 11. This morning we're starting a new chapter in our verse-by-verse study of Luke's gospel. And in this chapter we're going to find one of the two places in the New Testament that records our Lord's model prayer. The title of this series within the Gospel of Luke is Teach Us to Pray. It's a three-part series, Lord willing, this Sunday and next, and then the uh, Sunday of Thanksgiving week. We're going to look at these four verses in some detail together. But this morning, it's more of an overview. We're going to look at the purpose of the model prayer, and the next week, the details of the elements of the prayer. And then uh, the week of Thanksgiving, we're going to focus on verse 3. Give us our daily bread. And so I hope you'll make it a covenant to be here if you possibly can over the next three Sundays. So let's begin by reading Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 4. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now the fact that Jesus was praying at this point in his ministry would surprise no one who has studied the life and ministry of Jesus at all. You know that prayer was much more than an activity or a ritual of Jesus. It was his very way of life. We've studied already in Luke 5, 16, Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness to pray. In fact, he often began his day with prayer according to Mark 1. Mark 1, 35 says, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went out into a secluded place and was praying there. Now we know that Jesus did not pray to draw attention to himself. In fact, he condemns that sort of hypocritical praying to be seen by others. In Matthew 6, where we find uh, the other version of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gave two basic prohibitions against certain types of praying. First of all, he said, don't pray hypocritically. That is to draw attention to oneself or one's perceived piety. He says that's how the Pharisees pray. Remember the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Judaism. And they would often make quite a production out of their prayer life. They would uh, sound trumpets and they would... uh, cause people to look and stare. And they would stand when they prayed and they would pray with a loud voice to draw attention to themselves. And Jesus says, that's hypocritical praying and don't do that. And then he said, don't pray ritualistically like the Gentiles. The Gentiles were those who practiced other polytheistic false religions. And the way that they would pray is that they would recite the same words over and over and sometimes even chant them as if that somehow were going to get their God's attention. But it was meaningless, it was vain. But he says even Christians can be guilty of that, just monotonously repeating things over and over. And so he says, don't do those two things. So as it relates to prayer, Jesus begins with a negative. He says, don't pray like this. 
and then he moves to a positive, do pray like this. Again, Jesus did not pray to draw attention to himself, but obviously his disciples in their minds connected the great power that Jesus displayed among the people and the authority with which he taught to his extraordinary prayer life. Now they weren't always the sharpest knives in the drawer. But as it relates to prayer, they picked up very quickly that he would go away and spend time in prayer and he would come back and he would preach like no one they'd ever heard. He'd go away and he would pray in the wilderness and he would come back and heal the sick. And so they put two and two together and they said there must be a direct coalition between, correlation rather, between his prayer life and his ministry life. And of course there was. He said, I always and ever do the will of the Father. They wisely wanted instruction in this kind of prayer. And so an unnamed disciple here in Luke 11 appeals to Jesus and he appeals in an unusual way. He appeals to the fact that John the Baptist's disciples were taught how to pray, why not us? And it comes across as sort of petty and, and even juvenile, but Jesus of course is merciful, long suffering and he answers that prayer, that request and he says, okay, I'll, I'll teach you to pray. Whatever their motives, Jesus did teach them to pray and it was written down for our benefit and now we're taught how to pray. And that teaching here in these four verses is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer because the Lord prayed it. But it really is more accurately the disciples' prayer because He was teaching them how to pray. But I like to refer to it as the model prayer because I think that's what it really is, a model that we should base our own prayer lives on. Now I said this morning we're going to look at an overview of the purposes of the Lord's Prayer. Likely, if you've been a Christian very long at all, you've heard several ways in which people use the Lord's Prayer, sometimes appropriately, sometimes inappropriately. The, the first time I heard the Lord's Prayer said in public, it was said as a good luck mantra before a baseball game. And that's how it's often used before some difficult or dangerous activity, a sporting event or a trigonometry test, <laughs> you might hear someone muttering the Lord's Prayer to themselves. Another way it's used is as a penance for sin. In the Roman Catholic Church, for example, if you confess your sin to a priest, he will likely assign to you an act of penance or self-punishment. And these uh, penance differ in number and degree by the perceived degree of your sin. So if you tell a little white lie, he may simply say, well, go and say five our fathers. And you just repeat the Lord's Prayer five times. Again, that's an inappropriate way, I believe, to use the Lord's Prayer. But we Baptists sometimes use it in a, a little different way than I think it was originally intended. Sometimes we use it as a training tool for new believers to get them in the habit of praying. And we do this specifically with children. I don't think that's a sinful thing to do. Sort of like training wheels on their bicycle. You get them up and going and, and give them a little structure to their prayer, knowing that that's not an end to itself, but it's a way to get them moving in their prayer life. But I think what the model prayer is at its essence is that, it's a model. It's an example of the sort of elements that our extemporaneous prayers should contain. That is, I believe, the heart of the model prayer. It is, as it were, a perimeter fence around our prayer life to allow us freedom to express ourselves to God from the heart. And so on your outline this morning we have three points which are simply three 
benefits of praying the model prayer in the life of believers, or another way to look at it, three purposes of the model prayer. And they are, it aligns our priorities with God's, it humbles our heart, and it informs our relationships. So first, the model prayer, according to verse two, aligns our priorities. Look at it. He said to them, when you pray, say. When you pray, say. Now some people have taken that to mean that that's the only way we should use the model prayer. We should memorize it and recite it. I don't think that's what the Lord is saying at all. He says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Jesus knows, of course, because he knows everything, the self-centered nature of the human heart. I think that's why in Matthew 6, he warns us not to pray like the Pharisees. He even quotes one of the prayers of the Pharisees in a parable as a negative example. Let's look at that quickly. Turn over a few pages to Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, we'll come to verse 9. And Jesus is teaching and he uses the Pharisees as a negative example of prayer. Luke 18, 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus says, here's two men, two ways of praying. One is acceptable and pleasing to God, and the other is unacceptable and displeasing to God. And of course, the Pharisees' self-centered, self-righteous prayer was unpleasing and rejected by God. Now this Pharisee was a guy that had his prayer priorities out of alignment. A couple of weeks ago I went to the tire store because I had a slow leak in my right rear tire. And I came home with four new tires. <laughs> That's the way it seems to go with me. Uh, and I know very little about mechanics, and they told me that your car is out of alignment. Now, I know very little bit about cars, but I knew they were exactly right, because if I took my hand off the steering wheel for half a second, I went in the ditch. Well, here's a guy whose prayer priorities were out of alignment, and his life was in the ditch, spiritually speaking. And we know that by the way he uses personal pronouns. So, so go back and, and look at Luke 18, 9 through 13, and you'll find at least five usages of the personal pronoun I within two verses, two sentences. He says, I thank thee that I am not as other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now contrast that with the first verse of Jesus' model prayer where he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pronouns tell us a lot about the condition of a person's heart. This is how a model prayer starts because Jesus knows and understands 
our tendency to make everything, including prayer, about ourselves. But prayer, when done correctly, is first and foremost about the glory of God. Because we believe and teach at this church that everything is about the glory of God. And that includes our prayer life. And so the first thing that prayer does that Jesus models for us is that it aligns our heart with God's. And the second thing that it does, it humbles our heart. Look at verse 3 back in Luke 11. Give us each day our daily bread. Now nourishment is what sustains human life. And bread represents that which is basic and essential. And the word daily signifies our continuous state of need. Our former pastor, Leroy Patterson, when he would pray publicly, often would say, we are needy people. And I find myself repeating that phrase, Lord, we are needy people. And we are. But we can do nothing without the Lord. And by him saying we need daily bread, we need the essentials of life. We can't even sustain our existence without the blessings that come down from the Father of lights, food, clothing, shelter, health, a good mind. It is a recognition, this verse, of our utter dependence on Him for all things. I want you to hear this clearly. That acknowledgement that we are utterly dependent on Him for all things pleases God. It pleases God when we declare to Him what He already knows that we are utterly dependent on Him for all things. But prideful self-reliance is something that God hates. He opposes it with all that is in Him. He says so very clearly in His Word. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He commands His children to humble themselves under His mighty hand, that He may exalt them in due time. And the Bible in both Old and New Testament is full of examples and stories and warnings of people who did not do that, who did not humble themselves, and God was forced to humble them. One in the New Testament that comes to mind is often referred to as the, the rich farmer or the foolish farmer. Here's a guy that planted a crop, and lo and behold, he had a bumper crop when it came time for harvest. And rather than giving thanks to God for favorable weather conditions and fertile soil and all the things that farmers know have to come together for a bumper crop, he used it as an opportunity to buy himself a plaque that said Farmer of the Year. He was proud of his farming skills. And he says, what am I going to do? Don't have a big enough barn for my bumper crop. Here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my little barns and build bigger barns. I'll put my feet up. I've got enough to last for years. The Bible called that farmer a fool because that very day his life was required of him. An Old Testament example. I was reading in my daily Bible reading this week in the book of Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. I came to chapter 4. I was reading about King Nebuchadnezzar, which is an enigmatic figure to me in the Bible. Because in some of the chapters he's presented as a man of faith, Declaring that only the God of Daniel is the true God. Everybody's going to worship Him. And, and then he turns around and does something like he does in chapter 4. Listen to it. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now you've heard of Nebuchadnezzar. 
If you took Western civilization in junior high school, you studied the seven, uh, what are they called? Yeah, wonders of the ancient world. And one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for that. And he had a great architectural mind and built this great city, the greatest in the world. So get the picture. He walks out on the roof of his house and he's surveying this city that he built. And this is what he says. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Do those pronouns sound familiar? And while the, Lord was in the, well, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be the beast of the field you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it to whomever He wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws." Now here's the man that was the most powerful man of the world unquestionably at that time. Brilliant man. But he was a man full of pride. He did not give God the glory. So I take from that this truth. You will either humble yourself as God commands us to do under His mighty hand or He will humble you. And there are those in this room including your pastor who will give testimony <laughs> that to humble yourself is often much less painful than having God do it for you. And what we mean by that is constantly coming to Him, not when your head is swollen, every day coming to Him and say, Lord, give us our daily bread. We can't even carry on existing unless You help us, unless You do it. Here's a man, sounds like to me, had gone a long time without ever giving thanks to the Lord. Humble yourself under His mighty hand. And the model prayer helps us to do that. And so, what does the model prayer do? What are its purposes? One, it aligns our priorities to God's. It humbles our hearts. And then thirdly, it informs our relationships. Look at verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Now, you likely know already that there are two fundamental relational directions. There is the vertical and there are the horizontal relationships. So the vertical relationships obviously speaking of our relationship to God who is in heaven and then the horizontal relationships are all of our relationships with other human beings. And it's very manifestly true that if that primary relationship between God and ourselves is broken or damaged the other relationships really don't matter in the end. But if that relationship between ourselves and God is restored and reconciled, then we become free to pursue healthy relationships horizontally with other people. Now, I, I had that play out this week um, in the church. had a wonderful experience last week. Um, was called about a dear lady in the community who had been brought home for hospice care. Her daughter and her husband are members of our church here. And I went over 
to visit her at their home. And she was in a hospital bed in one of their side rooms there. And it was obvious her body was worn out. She was uh, very elderly. But when she saw me walk in the door, she recognized me as the pastor. And she began waving her arm to come over to her bedside. And I did. And uh, she smiled and said, Pastor, so glad you're here. She began to point to heaven. She said, would you pray that I'll go there today? She was ready to go. Well, I, I sometimes pray that prayer, but I, I didn't know this lady very well. So I, I said, well, can I ask you a few questions first? I said, are, are you ready? Are things right between you and God? She said, oh yeah, since I was 10 years old. She told me about growing up in Michigan and how she was saved there. And she married her husband. They were married for 69 years and she missed him so much and was ready to see him. She didn't even lose her sense of humor on the last day of her life. She said, yeah, up in Michigan, uh, we, we were surrounded by the, the Finnish Lutherans. And she said, when I get to heaven, I've got to be careful around them because they think they're the only ones that are there. <laughs> so here, here's a lady that's at peace with God. Things were right vertically and things were right horizontally and she was ready to go. And so you know what I prayed? I said, Lord, this dear lady is at peace with you because you have forgiven her sin through the blood of Jesus. She's ready to go. Her body is worn out. Would you be so gracious to take her home? And when I said amen, I didn't know what her response would be to that bold prayer. But she had the biggest smile on her face. And she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And did you know in just a few hours the Lord took her home? Now, the Lord is good, isn't he? And the Lord's prayer serves the purpose of reminding us how to have and maintain a relationship both vertically and horizontally. In this one verse, in a great economy of words, and if someone would ask me what is the secret of life, I'd point to this verse. First, we must receive forgiveness of our sins, and then we must grant forgiveness to other people. If you do those two things, you're well on your way to having a wonderful life. Receive the forgiveness that God offers you through Jesus Christ and then grant forgiveness to other people. See, the only way for that vertical relationship to be restored and made right is through faith in Jesus Christ. See, Paul said it so well in Romans 3.23, all of us fall short, don't we, of the glory of God. Well, that doesn't stop people from trying. And so they try to pray the rosary enough times and they try to do enough penance. They try to do enough good deeds. They try to give away enough money. They try to be a good enough neighbor for God to be pleased with them so this relationship is restored and it does not work. And so consequently, these relationships are often in a mess as well. And so when we look around the world stage and we see so many broken people, what we really see are broken relationships. We see homes in which there's not a, a real presence of parents. We see children in rebellion. We see uh, husbands and wives at each other's throats. We see um, the lack of respect for authority in many of our institutions. 
And all that is, friends, is, is the result of the fact that man's primary relationship is broken. The relationship between heaven and himself. And therefore he has no ability to have any sort of healthy and God-honoring relationships with other people. And so what do we do? We turn inside and everything becomes about us. And Jesus knows that. And that's why he says when you pray, pray like this. Not like the Pharisees who are self-centered and hypocritical. But get out of yourself and focus upon who God is and what he's done. And what he has done, beloved, is that he's done everything that is necessary for you to have a relationship with himself. He sent his own precious son into the world to live a perfect righteous life in our place, knowing we could not. And he died, which was his mission, a literal death on the cross. He was buried as men are buried, and on the third day he arose literally alive, victorious over the grave. And so we no longer have to fear death and dying. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are restored, we are reconciled, we are made right with God, and now this relationship that God intended for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden has been restored. And now we can have God-honoring relationships with other people. But first, we must receive forgiveness for our sins. It begins with confession. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It includes repentance, which means turning from their, that sin and, and towards holiness and, and towards righteousness. And then the proof of that restored relationship is how we deal with other people. We have been forgiven so much by the Lord Jesus, would you agree? We have no right to hold on to bitterness. We have no right to hold on to things others have done for us and withhold forgiveness. In fact, the Bible is very blunt at this point that if we don't forgive others, the Lord won't forgive us. This won't happen. It's not real. So if you understand and live those two basic truths, You've received the forgiveness of God and you grant forgiveness to other people. You really begin to understand the Lord's Prayer. You begin to understand its meaning and its purpose. Well, there is so much more to learn from this model prayer and I hope you'll be here over the next couple of weeks. But I think that's enough for now. So let's practice what we've been preaching today, can we? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and, and let's use the model prayer this morning in our closing prayer as a perimeter fence, not as a mantra, not as a good luck charm, but as a, a perimeter fence that if we stay within that, we have a lot of freedom to pour our heart out to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you are in heaven. You're alive. You care about us. One day you're going to call us home to be where you are. You are holy. You are distinct and different from anything on earth. You are absolutely perfect and without sin. And Father, it is our prayer and ambition that here on earth that uh, your will would be done as perfectly here as it is in heaven. That there would be absolute obedience and submissiveness to your commandments. 
And Lord, we know that is not the case right now. In fact, uh, most of the world lives in open rebellion against you and sometimes even those who claim to be Christians sin. I know I do. So Lord, I, I ask your forgiveness and I thank you for it because it's promised in many places that if we ask you, we'll forgive. Father, we are needy, needy people. Our greatest need is salvation. And Jesus has done everything necessary for that. So Lord, I pray if there'd be even one person in this room today who does not know him and the free pardon of sin, that today would be the day that your spirit would breathe life into their soul, grant them faith and repentance, and call them to salvation. Lord, thank you for many hundreds in this church today who know you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Father, that uh, you would continue to be patient with us because uh, we are all in the process of sanctification. Lord, help us to be patient with one another. Even as you have forgiven us, Lord, help us to be forgiving to one another. Help us not to hold on to bitterness and hurt. Father, help us to be like the dear lady that I mentioned earlier who was ready to go whenever you would call her. Help us to seek your righteousness above all things today. Father, we thank you because uh, you provide for us so well. Our daily bread, the food we eat, the houses where we lay our head at night, the families you've provided, this church, Lord, who, that means so much to us, Lord. We thank you for the many blessings. Lord, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians that you have granted to us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places because we are your sons and daughters. So Father, I pray as uh, we learn to pray from the words of Jesus, this model prayer, that you would mold us and make us more like him. That it would not just be an exercise in memory and recitation, that prayer would indeed become like it was for him when he walked this earth, a way of life that we would begin and end every day communicating with you and throughout the day live in constant communication with you, our creator, our savior, and our sustainer. And we thank you for that privilege which was made possible through the atoning work of Christ. And we pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.